0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This is the narrative of of, of God's covenant with David, King David, where he promises and establishes that God will now work through the Davidic line when it comes to uh, the kingship. Of God's people and he here uh, speaks of a king a particular king who will establish an everlasting kingdom so 2nd uh, Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 please pay careful attention for this is the word of our God now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he again write this word upon our hearts. Well, if you please turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading section. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, question and answers 31 and 32. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 31 asks, why is He called Christ, meaning anointed? Because He has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. And only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of His body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. Question 32 asks, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, To present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. As you know, we have taken three Sundays to consider this Lord's Day, question answers 31 and 32. And this, this catechism, as I've been saying all along, has three main sections, guilt, grace, and gratitude. This reflects the epistle to the Romans or the structure to the epistle to the Romans and many other of Paul's letters. And what of these three, which of these three sections are we currently in? Grace. We're considering God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have considered who Christ is as our mediator, he's true man, he's true God, and thus perfectly qualified to accomplish a free salvation for the Father's people. As a consequence, our response to the mediator is to be faith. Not all are saved, but only those who who profess true faith in Jesus Christ and thus are united to him. And what are the three elements of true faith? knowledge assent and trust cat knowledge assent and trust there are no certain things we have to assent to those things meaning they have to be we have to believe that they're true but then lastly we have to have a personal trust and and faith and belief in these things and according to the catechism what is the content of this this faith what document does the catechism point us to the apostles creed the apostles creed although it's not scripture, it's a very faithful summary of the main tenets of the gospel. The main things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in. And so, now the Catechism is spending many weeks walking through each article of the Apostles' Creed as the content of true faith. More specifically, we are considering what it means when we refer to Christ as Christ. Jesus is his name, Christ is his title, it's It means he's the Messiah. We confess that this title means that Christ has been ordained by God the Father, meaning he was set apart by God to do his work. And he was anointed with the Spirit, meaning he was filled with the Spirit uh, to do a certain work. And he was ordained and anointed to to fulfill what three offices? Prophet, Prophet, priest, king. He is the true prophet of God's people, the fulfillment of the prophetic office of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the whole priesthood. He offered the definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. A better sanctuary, a better temple. God's heavenly temple. And now we're going to consider how he is the true king. He is the true king. And question 32, very helpfully, explains for us what it means to be a Christian. Now That's a term that we all are familiar with, use. Uh, We use it to refer to ourselves, but many of us probably haven't really considered what that specifically means. According to question answer 32, it means that uh, by faith, we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ. Throughout the New Testament, union with Christ is such an important concept. We're united to Christ by faith. And as we're united to Christ, we share in Christ's prophetic ministry by confessing his name. So we confess our faith in response to uh, his prophetic ministry that's revealed to us in scripture. Uh, we share in his priestly office insofar as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of thanks In gratitude for that definitive sacrifice that he, he offered for us. And then today we're going to consider how we share in his royal kingly office. So we're going to consider Christ's kingship and then how we as Christians share in that royal office. Well, the first verse of Matthew, so Matthew chapter one, verse one, Matthew is the first gospel in our New Testaments. The very first verse of that first gospel says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, the very beginning of the New Testament Uh, we are told that there's a very, very important connection between David and Christ. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes from David's lineage. He's a son of David. And so what I'd like us to do uh, this morning as we reflect upon the kingship of Christ is reflect upon how David foreshadows Jesus' kingship. uh, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a king, sort of the the paradigmatic king uh, for Israel. Uh, He was the one with whom God made a covenant. You think of God's covenants in the Old Testament, which are not not that many. He made a covenant with Abraham, Moses, David. These covenants are like God uh, pushing the fast forward button in redemptive history, speeding along the revelation of, of what he's going to do for us in his son. So David is a very important figure and a very important figure to reflect upon if we want to know more about the kingship of Christ. Christ comes as the son of David, the greater David, the greater king than David himself. Well, first and 2 Samuel are, are uh, two books that reveal to us the life of David. And we don't know much about the beginning of David's life. He sort of just comes on the scene when he's anointed king. And here in 2 Samuel 7... David is king and we read in verse one that uh, this King David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So David was enjoying prosperity in the land of Canaan and uh, the author tells us that he was experiencing rest. Now remember that when Israel is enjoying prosperity in the land of Canaan, oftentimes it's described as rest. Why? Because Canaan is an earthly picture of God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, earthly representation of the new creation of heaven. And so David was experiencing rest in the land, victory over enemies, prosperity. He was living in a great palace, the king's house. And as he's reflecting upon his kingship, his life, this time of prosperity, he calls Nathan the prophet before him and realizes realizes that something's not right (laughs) I live in this grand palace and God, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant was how God's redemptive presence dwelt among his people. God is dwelling in a tent. There is no permanent temple or sanctuary for the Ark of the Covenant to reside in. And David is reflecting to himself and he realizes this isn't right. I, a king of God, have this beautiful palace and God's presence is dwelling in a tent. And he thinks to himself, I need to do something about this. I need to build God a permanent house, a permanent structure, a permanent temple. And Nathan says, this seems like a good desire. You're a man after God's own heart. Go go and do it. God will be with you. Well, then, uh, consequently, God reveals himself to Nathan in a vision and and tells Nathan uh, to give a message to David. God tells Nathan, You know, ever since I redeemed Israel out of Egypt, have I ever dwelt in a permanent house? I've always been in a tent. Furthermore, he says, you know, think back to a prior time in your history when when we had judges. Did I ever tell one of the judges of Israel to build me a house to dwell in? He says, no, no, no. You tell David, he is not going to build me a house. Rather, I am going to build him a house. And here we have a wonderful wordplay on this word house. There's at least two uh, main uses to the word house. So David, of course, is using house in a way that's pretty common to us, a dwelling place. He wants to build a a permanent temple, dwelling place, for the ark of God to reside in. But God, in response, says, no, 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 David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. God, then, is using this term in another way. He's using it to refer to a dynasty or a people or a kingdom. Think of the times when uh, scripture refers to the house of Israel, not referring to the dwelling place in which uh, people of Israel uh, live in. It's referring to a people, the people of Israel. So what God is saying is saying, no, David, you're not going to build me a dwelling place. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a kingdom, a people. And we learn that this, dynasty, this, 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 this kingdom or this throne that God is going to establish with, with David is, is going to be unconditional and and everlasting. I will raise up in verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Um, I will establish his kingdom. We learn that this throne is going to be everlasting meaning the Davidic line will be perpetual. We know that there's going to be a break in this Davidic line when Israel goes off into exile, but God will never turn his back on the Davidic line. The kingship runs through David's house now, David's line. And this is unconditional. Listen to what Jeremiah 33 verses 19 through 21 Say, it says, the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, uh, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David and my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. So, so what he's saying is that as long as this present creation endures, there's a better chance of the sun not rising tomorrow than for, than for God to break his covenant with David. That's how sure this promise is. So boys and girls, every time we, we see the, the sun and the moon, that's a reminder that God is being true to his covenant with, with David. Be easier for the sun to not rise than for God to break his covenant This covenant that he made centuries ago with David, there always will be a king on the throne. God is establishing a house for David, a dynasty, a kingdom, a people that will be perpetual. But there's also this, this conditional element that's, 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 that's displayed here in this verse. He, God talks about this throne, this kingdom that will go on, that there'll always be a son on the throne. But then there's this language about a particular son who will establish an everlasting kingdom. So notice in verse 13, we read, and, and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's talking about a particular son who will do a particular work, who will then have an everlasting kingdom, meaning He will be the last son of David because there will be no more need for future sons of David. And his work is described as building a house for God's name. So David is not the one who's going to build a house for God. A future son of David will. Now, some of us might think of Solomon. Solomon who actually did build the, the permanent temple. But he is not the one who fulfilled this because when you think about what the temple symbolizes the temple symbolizes that place in which the people of God would praise and glorify him it 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 symbolizes wholehearted devotion and obedience to God God says elsewhere that it's not ultimately sacrifices that I want but but a heart of obedience Solomon turned away from God. Solomon did not have a a pure, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And so he is not the one who fulfills this. And of course, we know he did not have a perpetual, everlasting kingdom. He perished and died. So we see this being fulfilled in Christ. Christ, who is the fulfillment of not just the Davidic line, but of the temple. He is the one who perfectly built the temple of the Lord, meaning he's the one who only had wholehearted devotion to his God, who perfectly obeyed his God, who was not a curse for the people, but a blessing for the people whom he led. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of these promises in in second Samuel seven. And thus he is the one who establishes an everlasting throne an everlasting kingdom. And that's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read Jesus is the son of David. (laughs) He's the fulfillment of that covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. He is the one who who built God's temple, who has established an everlasting throne. So David failed. Solomon failed. And then as you continue to go on, it gets worse and worse and worse. But But Christ comes as the fulfillment of that kingly office. Well, according to our catechism, what are the, the, as our king, as our king, what are the the two main things that Jesus does for us as church? Governs and guards. Yeah, he governs us uh, by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us. So think about Ephesians 4. We reflected upon this few months ago, at the beginning of our Catechism, by Ephesians 4, we Christ ascended to heaven. He sits as our king at the right hand of God, and, and he, as he goes up, he pours gifts down upon his church. Now the chief of these gifts is the spirit, Pentecost. Christ goes up, the spirit comes down, but Ephesians 4 also tells us that pastors and teachers are also gifts from the ascended Savior. So Christ, who is our king, who governs his church, he governs us, he cares for us through his word and spirit. and Especially as that word is delivered through pastors and teachers, elders in the local church. This is how Christ seeks to care for his people. The preaching and teaching of his word as it's accompanied by the power of the spirit. This is is not the method we thought of. This is the method that Christ has given his church. The Great Commission was pretty simple. Go into all the nations, baptize, and teach. we see that's the paradigm that's reflected in the book of Acts. Apostles are going forth. And uh, in the name of the ascended Savior, preaching, teaching, and ministering the sacraments. But then we also see that he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Paul says in Romans 8 that that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For those of us who are in Christ, union with Christ, nothing can separate us from from God. Not even ourselves. That's the, the preservation that we get from Christ our King. He makes sure, as he says in John's Gospel, that none of whom the Father has given him will perish, but he will raise them up on the last day. Christ defends and preserves us against the devil, against our own sin, against the accusations of the evil one, against the condemnation of the law from from our own hearts. He defends and preserves us. Well, according to question answer 32, how do we share in Christ's kingship? What are the what are the two main verbs that we have towards the end of that question? Yes, strive and reign, and, th- and there's a present aspect to this and a future aspect to it. We are, uh, we are currently striving with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and then we look forward in the age to come to reigning with Christ over all creation and eternity. So as we briefly reflect on, on how we share in Christ's kingly royal office, I'd like to Continue to reflect upon the life of David, but now go backwards in the narrative of David and, and look at uh, David's um, battle with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So this is right after he was anointed as king, and we see that the Philistines, the, one of the um, chief enemies of God's people, sends out a representative, Goliath, and Israel is cowering in their tents. And who's chosen? But David. Small, weak shepherd boy. Not someone one would pick to fight uh, this giant, the representative of God's enemies. And if you think back to Genesis 315, Genesis 315 is the first proclamation of the gospel. And it comes as God is cursing the devil after the fall into sin. And God says this, he says that to the devil, the, the, the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. That sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. We have this this great conflict between God and his chosen seed and the serpent and his demons. The seed of the serpent and God and his seed. And so here in this, in the narrative of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, we have foreshadowed for us this great conflict. God's chosen seed and the serpent. We see this fulfilled ultimately in Christ, and that's why we have, there's so much demonic uh, activity in the Gospels is because uh, the seed is about to crush the head of the serpent. But this is foreshadowed for us in 1 Samuel 17. The Goliath is presented as a serpent. How is, is Goliath struck down in 1 Samuel 17? Anyone Remember? A, a stone to the head, right? And then if you remember, what does David do after he, he uh, kills Goliath? He cuts off his head. In Genesis chapter 3.15, God promises us that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So right there we see this. We should be clued in that this is a, a, a type, a, a, an image of the serpent. But then furthermore, we also read in 1 Samuel 17 that Goliath had a coat of armor. And literally in the Hebrew, this is scales of armor. He's a a scaly warrior of the Philistines. Again, we're clued in that this is is serpent-like language. He dies by a blow to the head. He has scales of armor. David... He's not this great warrior. He's weak, he's humble, he's small, he's a shepherd boy. Very similar to how Christ comes to this earth. Weak, meek, humble. Not how a lot of people thought the Messiah would come. So David is is a type of Christ. It's amazing that after David defeats Goliath, crushes his head, as it were, the Israelites who were cowering in their tents are now emboldened to go and fight the Philistines. Towards the end of the chapter, we see that that David leads Israel out to defeat the Philistines. And so in this narrative, we're not David. We're the Israelites. We are those who are cowering in our tents. And we need God's chosen representative to... Rescue us from our deadly enemies. And our deadly enemies are the devil. Our own sin. The condemnation of the law. And God's chosen representative does that. That's why Jesus came to this earth. Through his life, death, resurrection. He crushes the head of the serpent. He rescues us from the, the, uh, uh, from the, from the evil one to whom we were in bondage. Rescues us from our own sin, from the condemnation and accusations of the law, and we're brought into a new kingdom. And it's only after we have been definitively saved and rescued by our king that we're emboldened and able to go strive with a free conscience against the sin, our sin, and and the devil in this life. Just as the Israelites were only emboldened to go out and fight the Philistines after David had given them victory over Goliath. So here again, we see in, in shadowy form what question and answer 32 is telling us. That the way in which we share in Christ's royal office is as we go out and strive against our, our greatest enemies because we've already been definitively delivered through Christ our King. Remember that this, 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 these question and answers are coming in the context of true faith. So after every question and answer, we need to remember that these are the things that we are called to know, called to assent to, but ultimately called to believe in personally, trust in personally. And so let me ask you, are you personally trusting in this King Jesus, the one who came mounted on a donkey? Have you submitted to the way in which he seeks to govern his people in this age through his word and spirit in the context of the local church? Are you trusting in the fact that because of what he's done for you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You believe that you trusting and resting in that. As a response to this, we are called to then go forth and strive, uh, live a life of gratitude and strive against the sins, strive against the vices and temptations in our life. And give glory to God who has definitively rescued us through his son. So this, fulfill, this, this concludes our, our consideration of question answer 31 and 32. Again, a very f- helpful summary of who Christ is. What does the title Christ mean? Prophet, priest, king. And, and what it means to be a Christian. That's our identity, isn't it? And this is a very helpful summary of how we are called to live according to that, our identity. We're called to be a people of faith. And as a people of faith, we're called to confess our faith. Words matter. We're called to uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ. And we're called to strive against our, our greatest enemies in this life.